I recently came across a TikTok video that I wanted to discuss some ideas about. And in it, Rachel says, Hi, this message is for the older generations of the evangelical church who always told us when we were growing up that you were praying for our generation to rise up and to bring about revival. That's what this is. This is revival. We are trying to bring the body of Christ away from harmful things like Christian nationalism, racism, misogyny, and bigotry, and bring it back to being about Jesus, his death, resurrection, and his teachings. And she concludes, This is the revival that you were praying for, and you're calling it heresy. Wow, that's strong words. Well, hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. And I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, What Revival Really Looks Like. So I think that my generation, as with many generations in the last century or so, inherited an understanding that, quote, revival was either a Billy Graham big tent meeting where thousands of people made sudden and dramatic professions of faith, or maybe in a Sousa Street situation where an entire town was dramatically overtaken for Jesus, or even something smaller where a church, usually Baptist, annually held a planned week-long series of nightly events to stir people up to repent. Well, those are certainly a form of revival, and Azusa Street did initiate a shift of spiritual awareness across America, within certain segments of the church at least. But they probably also preconditioned us to narrow our definition of revival a bit too much. For a moment, let's consider some calls to revival in the Bible. One says, Restore us, God of our salvation, and cause your indignation towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. And that's from Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7. In Psalm 80, verses 14 through 19, it says, God of armies, do turn back. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine, the shoot which your right hand has planted, and of the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish from the rebuke of your face. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Lord God of armies, restore us. Make your face shine upon us, and we will be saved. Or in Isaiah 57, For this is what the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Also, let's consider these definitions of revival from various websites. From CGI.org, quote, The word revival is from the Hebrew word chaya and means to bring back to life, to restore to consciousness, or to restore to a previous condition. We might say, the drowning victim was miraculously revived. As used in the Bible, it means a restoration, rejuvenation, or renewal of interest after spiritual neglect, oblivion, or obscurity. From the website DesiringGod.org, says, quote, In the history of the church, the term revival in its most biblical sense has meant a sovereign work of God in which the whole region of many churches, many Christians, has been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin, 
earnest desires for more of Christ in his word, boldness in witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions. You feel God has moved here. And basically revival then is God doing among many Christians at the same time or in the same region usually what he is doing all the time in individual Christians' lives as people get saved and individually renewed around the world. Now, I, this is interesting because it claims a biblical sense for something that isn't in the Bible. Okay. Uh, from harvest.org, revival is nothing more or less than a new beginning of obedience to God. It's a church word, revival. It is not for the non-believer. Revival starts with the church and then affects the world. The world does not need revival. The church does. The world needs evangelism. Evangelism does not bring revival, but revival always brings evangelism. Yeah, well, that quote makes a good point. Revival always starts at home, if you will, in the church. From the website gotquestions.org, quote, Revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening his or her eyes to the truth in a new, fresh way. It generally involves the connotation of a fresh start with a clean slate, marking a new beginning of life lived in obedience to God. Revival breaks the charm and the power of the world, which blinds the eyes of men and generates both the will and power to live in the world, but not of the world. And it continues, quote, The evidence of revival, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon believers, is changed lives. Great movements towards righteousness, evangelism, and social justice occur. Believers are once again spending time in prayer and reading and obeying God's word. Believers begin to powerfully use their spiritual gifts. There is confession of sin and repentance. Okay, and again, the point appears here that revival is something for the believer, not the world outside the body of Christ. Well, consider that the response of the Acts Church to Jesus' life and death and resurrection didn't look much at all like what we think of as revival regarding Billy Graham Crusades or Azusa Street or small-town First Baptist Church's scheduled annual revival meetings. But I think that Acts certainly represents the truest form of revival ever seen, and a few of those definitions above capture that same flavor. But here's the thing. To the religious leaders of that day, what happened in Jerusalem as described in Acts was, was really the worst thing that could have happened as many congregants unthinkably walked away from absolutely core aspects of their religious observances, such as circumcision, the need for temple sacrifices, the utter sanctity of the Holy of Holies, the need for priests as go-betweens with God, and much more. Well, it seems to me that what we're seeing today, and in this, in this recording I'll call it neo-revival, looks a lot more like Acts, than it does like Billy Graham or Azusa Street or a small town First Baptist. And it seems to me that the core similarity between Acts and today is that the people are discovering they don't need a priest standing between themselves and God. The temple or the church institutions and buildings and all the religious practices, well, they were created to represent something, not to be something. They were meant to represent the dwelling of God with man. 
Eventually, God's design was to fully inhabit his people such that his people were his dwelling place. Israel and its temple, well, it pointed away to Jesus, which pointed away to the corporate Christ comprised of every tribe, tongue, and language. But the temple and the church both became impediments to the thing that they were only supposed to represent. And I say impediments in the sense that the institutions became the thing that the people effectively worshipped. And they, by their institutional nature, prevented people from truly becoming the personal living temple, the dwelling of God in man. And similarly, all those new post-temple religious practices became impediments and even objects of worship themselves. And here's the thing. I suspect these things are exactly what many people today are actually rebelling against. Long before Jesus, God made it clear that the temple was his dwelling. But in Christ, he relocated into a people. And in AD 70, the Lord allowed the Romans to recapture Jerusalem and destroy the second temple. And this forced the new Christian faith to scatter to the ends of the world, effectively driving them to do what Jesus in his last recorded earthly words after his resurrection had commanded of his followers. And in Mark 16, 15, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. And similarly, in Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now, just as an aside here, I think it's interesting that the word translated go, or poriuthentes, which is Strong's number 4198, is actually a plural, nominative, aorist, passive participle. Now, a lot of uh, theologian words, but basically it's a past tense of you, plural, you having departed or gone. So a more pure translation of those verses might be something like, having gone into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all creation. How strange for a command to be given, basically describing a future event in the past tense. It really takes the emphasis off of the go verb and it puts it on the make disciples verb. In other words, having gone, make disciples. To me, this almost seems to predict the idea that they were going to be displaced and scattered. And their role was then proclaim the gospel. One way to look at this is that after 70 years of inaction, the Lord basically kicked them out of the nest and expected them to remember, having now found themselves dispersed, that they were supposed to make disciples. So here we are, a couple thousand years later. Christians certainly have gone out into all the world, often scattered against their will, and have proclaimed the gospel to those that they encountered. But strangely, what we see is this same tendency to, again, hole up in our social clubs we now call churches, where with few exceptions, the majority of the life of the kingdom is carried out. It may be distributed among many thousands of individual buildings scattered around the globe, but the vast majority of the energy devoted to Christianity, for the vast majority of Christians, happens behind the doors of those buildings or maybe in small groups connected to them. We feel like the lost ought to come to us if we're just attractive enough. I cannot speak about other nations, but at least in America, it's pretty clear that most of what passes for outreach evangelism today is done by the few who are effectively paid to do so by their congregations, be it some third world country or in the local marketplace or homeless encampment. Most of that activity is done by a select few as their full-time job. Frontier Harvest Ministries notes that on average across America, only 1.5% of Christian income is given to Christian causes. And of this, only 6% of that 
1.5%, goes to missions. And only 1.7% of that 6%, of that 1.5%, goes to reaching the unreached. Uh, in other words, 0.00135% of American Christian income goes into reaching the unreached. Uh, in another way of looking at it, for a family of $100,000 of income per year, that's $1.35. A few candy bars. As Claude Hickman observed, Americans have recently spent more money buying Halloween costumes for their pets than the amount given to reach the unreached. Only one of about every 209,000 Christians goes as a missionary to the unreached. You have a better chance of being in a plane crash. So, as Sky Jathani asked in the title of his recent book, what if Jesus was serious? Well, I hear and I see a lot of former church attendees asking exactly that question with their feet. Not because they don't worship Jesus, but precisely because they do. They, and I, can no longer reconcile what we read in Scripture with what we see the American church doing. It seems to me that we're in the season right now with this rather sudden and dramatic upheaval in church attendance and a flood of personal and media stories about deconstruction that it looks a lot like what happened in AD 70, except this time it's not the Romans tearing down the temple, it's the Holy Spirit in a wide variety of ways, leaving a remnant to abandon the quote replacement temple of institutional church and find themselves having gone into all the world as it said in Mark sixteen fifteen, No doubt there will be many who, quote, stay in Jerusalem, so to speak, mourning the burnt and crumbled stones of the temple and vowing to rebuild it to its former glory. But it seems to me that the Lord may be trying to make it clear to his people that those buildings are not his dwelling place any longer, and it's time to remember his calling to us in Mark 16. Now, one caution I see raised again and again is that this deconstruction is unknown and there are extremes and there are people backsliding. Well, let's consider the words of the well-known colonial-era preacher Jonathan Edwards in his 1741 paper, Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, where he discussed and defended the revival sweeping across New England in that day. He discusses how things that appear to be black marks against revival may not be. And some of this information can be found in several links, which I'll post in the show notes, and you can find on the blog post. And uh, he says these things. Just because it is new and different doesn't mean it is wrong. It is no argument that a work on the minds of people is not the work of the Spirit of God in that it causes a great stir about religion. And also, we can't assume that the work was from not from God if some people go to extremes. And Edward says... It is no sign that a work is not from the Spirit of God, in that many who seem to be the subjects of it are guilty of great imprudence and irregularities in their conduct, nor are many errors in judgment and some delusions of Satan that have intermixed with the work any argument that the work in general is not of the Spirit of God. We also can't assume that the work was not from God if some people backslide. As Edward says, if some fall away into gross errors or scandalous practices, then it is no argument that the work in general is not the work of the Spirit of God. And as much as I vehemently, and I mean vehemently, disagree with the characterization of God in his famous hellfire sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I nonetheless think that Edwards is very much on point in this analysis of revival. 
and he presents these positive signs of revival. First, Jesus is honored, and he writes, So that if the Spirit that is at work among a people to convince them of Christ and lead them to him, to confirm their minds in the belief of the history of Christ as he appeared in the flesh, and that he is the Son of God and was sent by God to save sinners, that he is the only Savior and that they stand in great need of him, and if he seems to create in them higher and more honorable thoughts of him than they used to have and to incline their affections more to him, then it is a sure sign that it is the true and right spirit. Well, I say, what I see happening today is exactly this. These neo-revivalists are specifically calling attention to how Jesus' command and character are not being honored by these aspects of the current institutional church culture. Edward says there's a second sign, Satan's kingdom is opposed. And he writes, When the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lusts, this is a sure sign that it is a true and not a false spirit. And I'd say these neo-revivalists are often explicitly pursuing God's kingdom and calling attention to how the cosmos, or the domain of Satan, the cosmocrator, has infiltrated the church. Edward's third point is God's word is highly regarded. And he writes, The spirit that operates in such a manner as to cause in men a greater regard for the holy scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and religion is certainly the spirit of God. And I'd say I see constant calls among these neo-revivalists to focus on the actual scriptures, going back to the word, unfiltered and raw and original, and finding out how it has been corrupted by maybe well-meaning, but still erroneous interpretations and false doctrines. Edwards' fourth point is, God's truth is revealed. And he writes, If by observing the manner of the operation of the Spirit that is at work among a people, we see that it operates as a spirit of truth, leading people to truth, convincing them of those things that are true, we may safely determine that it is a right and true spirit. And I'd say, as above, the call for clarity and proper interpretation rings true on the lips of many, many of these neo-revivalists, faithful Christians who are deconstructing, as they say, from church falsehoods that masquerade as truth. And his fifth and final sign is, God and others are loved. And he writes, If the spirit that is at work among a people operates as a spirit of love to God and man, it is a sure sign that it is the spirit of God. And I'd say perhaps this is the strongest of signs, that these neo-revivalists are deeper in love with God than ever, and their hearts have been turned after the heart of God, specifically for the lost, the marginalized, the oppressed, the victims, the prisoner, the undercast in general. Now, you may disagree about some of these signs. Are they focusing on real scripture or not? Are they honoring the right interpretations or not? Is it the real Jesus is being honored or represented or not? Well, that is for God to judge, perhaps, but this season is teaching me that what I used to see as simple answers to those questions were ultimately founded on a lot of inherited assumptions that I'd never personally owned or I'd never studied to show myself approved. So I'm a lot less willing to call things error than I used to be, and I'm finding myself much more patient with others' conclusions, even if they make me uncomfortable. My response now is to immediately ask the Lord what he thinks about them, instead of going into a mode of defending the honor and the word of the Lord from error. 
God's quite capable of defending his own honor and his word without me. And when I'm too quick to do it for him, well, I usually miss something true and beautiful that he is doing simply because it looks like nothing I've ever seen before. So as Rachel said in her TikTok video, you are praying for our generation to rise up and bring about revival. That's what this is. This is revival. Well, given what I'm seeing, I certainly won't call it heresy. I'll call it revival with Rachel. Now, as I was wrapping up my thinking on this, I started to reflect again on that great commission in Matthew and in Mark. And finding myself no longer in my comfortable church nest for the first time in 50 years, even though I'm sitting in my home office recording this, I'm actually now one of the, quote, having gone, unquote. I'm out in the world in some sense. And I realized that Jesus' command to spread the gospel and make disciples, that applies to me right here, right now. I'm really thinking about those unreached right in my own backyard, the 30% of nuns in America that identify as no particular religion, either agnostic or atheist themselves, or maybe the 20 to 30% of Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z who identify as non-binary or LGBTQ. These are exactly the ones that the church is uncomfortable reaching and wouldn't be particularly happy to have them sitting in their pews next to them on Sunday morning. And seriously, the feeling seems to be mutual, too. Those nuns and non-binary really don't want to be in church either because they've seen how they're treated by Christians. But they need Christ, and they're in my community. I don't need to travel to Haiti or Africa to find them. They're here. So maybe this season of revival either driving or calling so many out of the church, is a modern fulfillment of Mark 16, 15. We're out there. Now it's time to spread the gospel. But not the gospel of the church, the gospel of the kingdom instead, here and now, rising up in the earth among a remnant. The new revival is beginning. So I invite you, join me. If you've deconstructed and you're feeling aimless, Go back and read Matthew 28 and Mark 16 with fresh vision. And then ask the Lord, who around you needs the gospel? You've been sent right where you are right now. And Jesus promised, behold, I am with you always. Well, thanks for listening and we'll talk again soon.